All right, everyone, welcome to the roundup episode of On the Margin. I'm your co-host and one of the co-founders of BlockWorks, Michael Ippolito. I'm joined, as always, by my intrepid co-host, Mr. Tyler Neville. How are you doing this week, Tyler? Intrepid, huh? That's intrepid. <laughs> I, I signed like a new adjective to you. Yeah, yeah. there you go. That's your Emory yeah. education at work. Exactly. Yeah, I don't mean to flex, but, uh, you know, it's my <laughs> SAT vocab word of the week. Um, I love it. Just to give our uh, people who are tuning in here an overview, we're going to be talking about some pretty cool stuff this week. It was a bit of a quiet week in, in macro land, um, but we are going to be talking about kind of the stalling reflationary trade. It looks like the yield on the 10 years backing up, so we're going to get into that. In uh, crypto world, we're going to be covering the uh, Fidelity's filing of a Bitcoin ETF. Um, we're going to be talking about the continuing to fall uh, GBTC premium. Um, and kind of a slowdown in demand on the institutional lending front. And then finally, we're going to be talking about sovereign wealth funds. It seems like there's some interest. Um, they're sniffing around Bitcoin, which I, I will give you credit. You have brought that up in newsletters um, in past weeks. So it's a good call on that, Mr. Neville. Very well, well done. That's not... why you get intrepid. That's why I'm calling you intrepid. Yeah. You, you, <laughs> you went, you intrepid. boldly staked that claim. And uh, I think it was a good one. Um, We'll Before we get into that, see. are you sleeping any better this week? Do you show your kids any more Ninja Turtles? Uh, yeah, we, we, we turned down the Ninja Turtle action, uh, tr turned up the reading action, so he's sleeping a little bit better. But I have another problem is my internet's been uh, pretty touchy lately. So mm -hmm. I have like a 10-second delay on like Zoom calls for some reason, and it's driving me absolutely crazy. Like That's you talk worst. over one another left and right. It's, it's miserable. There's no better way to ruin a call than by with a delay. Or like, oh, I can't hear you. Oh, what? What's that? It's, yeah, it's just, it just ruin. It just ruins the calls. Yeah, it's first time it's happened since the pandemic, and I'm just like going nuts. I'm like, let me just call your cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I I'm, I'm a big fan of still. I feel like that's an old fashioned thing now, but just picking up the phone, calling. The Zoom yeah. fatigue is real. It's you know. It's real. It's, it's real. It's a real thing. Yeah, absolutely. And like um, sometimes, I don't know if this happens to you or I'm just like, just I my face gets stuck because you're like smiling. You're like, <laughs> and then you're like, I've been smiling for 30 minutes. It's why like I'm trying to be smiling. engaging here. Yeah, I'm trying to be engaging. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. there's only you so know. much, especially if you've got back-to-back -back calls. You know, there's only so much smiling you can one can really do. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like I'm only so happy to be thing. chatting with you here. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, let's get into it. So stalling reflationary trade. So the 10-year yield is finally starting to back up a little bit. Uh, its peak was at something like 1.75%. We're down around 165 basis points. Um, and you know it seems like that reflationary trade, which was all the rage uh, for the last couple of weeks, is slowing down. Uh, can you give us just an explanation about what's going on here? Yeah, I think we just went too far too fast. And mm -hmm. we saw like a, you know, four standard deviation move outside of the norm in, in 10 year yields rising. And now we're just consolidating. That's the bottom line. But there is something below the surface that I have on my radar, which is the dollar is actually rising slowly. Like it's not rising incredibly fast, but like it's consistently been going up. And if you look at the Japanese yen and the Chinese yuan, uh, both of those are selling off. Which kind of leads me to think like, okay, is there inflation in China and Japan? And will that lead to deflation in the U.S.? Because essentially that causes a stronger dollar, right? Mm. Um, so those are the things on my radar a little bit longer term. But 
topically, you'd expect, okay, we got, you know, the Biden administration is basically saying we're doing a $3 trillion infrastructure plan. We're printing $120 billion a month. That's $1.4 trillion annually. You'd be like, superficially, dollars should probably be uh, annihilated, you know? <laughs> and we're not seeing that, which gives the Fed even more power and fiscal authorities to, ge- to, to juice this thing up even more. And you've you've called out uh, in in several of the newsletters this week, and I saw you tweeted out as well that well you're you're kind of watching for a potential credit crisis or some some backups in the credit market. What's what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, I just think credit was priced to perfection. I wouldn't call it a crisis by any means yet. Like we're still on the lows, but I just don't see how we can go higher from here. Where if you you know credit spreads were super tight. Uh, rates were at you know generational lows. I think we're edging towards a credit widening, credit spreads are widening, and things are getting a little bit weaker there. If it's a crisis, you got to watch the dollar because the dollar will tell you if we're heading into a super deflationary environment. And if you get the dollar strength bonds selling off and stocks selling off, that's that's sort of like the holy trinity of like, get the hell out of assets. Yeah. And you mentioned, do you think that's what's going on right now? Because, you know, kind of both stocks and bonds are taking a dip. So people are kind of looking at their portfolio and saying, whoa, I'm losing money um, and moving back into the dollar. Do you think that's playing a role here? Yeah, a little bit. I think uh, when you, when you see both your stock portfolio and bond portfolio sell off, you're like, oh my god, where do I go? And and gold's not even working, right? No. So that's kind of funky, you know. Bitcoin is, and and I think you're seeing institutional investors being like, all right, well, okay, the Fed's going to keep this thing going, the fiscal authorities are going to keep this thing going. I might as well move into digital assets because if these other things have topped out and it's looking like at least tech is topped out, I think you're going to get a rotation into the value stuff, which which is happening below the surface. Those things are increasingly making um, higher lows or mm. lower highs. <laughs> and uh, so, so that stuff is rotating under the surface. But like the tech that was outrageously priced is still kind of getting pounded. And I think that's going to happen regardless. Gold's an interesting thing to bring up here as well, right? So gold's been moving lower. People are confused about that, but really gold responds and pretty much inversely tracks real yields, right? So when the 10 year was moving up, I guess it's not a real surprise that gold was moving down. I guess it would be interesting to watch as, um, you know, like you were saying, maybe we're, we're starting to see that trend reverse, what happens with gold and how does it respond? You'd think it would be positive, but I guess we'll see. Yeah. The gold narrative is really interesting. Is I used to think that you could hold both gold and Bitcoin. And I, I still don't think gold is dead by any means, but I think there is some allocation from those people that did hold gold into, into Bitcoin now. If they're like, yeah. okay, wow, we get – it's got the gold story and it's becoming less of a, uh, there's a less of a stigma attached to digital assets. In fact, if you don't own them, you're probably going to be left behind. So you yep. might be getting that $10 trillion to $1 trillion ARB a little bit. I'm, so I also, for the longest time, and I own, I own both, I own both gold and Bitcoin. And for the longest time, I did think there was a place for both of them. And now I'm starting to 
I'm starting to walk that back a little bit and I'm starting to be more bullish on Bitcoin. And, you know, we, so the episode of on the margin that's coming out on Wednesday was with Grant Williams, who I know, you know, brilliant guy. It's a great interview. We should all listen to it. Um, but you know, he's a big fan of gold and he, he laid out the argument in a very succinct way. Uh, and when I listen to guys like that and guys like Dan Tapiero, Dan Tapiero is another guy who thinks there's a place for gold and a place for Bitcoin. But I think the, the way that I think about it is, you know, there is, gold feels like the analog version of that. They're both, they're being used in the same sentence now, right? They're, they're a debasement trade asset. And it feels like Bitcoin is the digital version of that. It also feels like um, there's just momentum behind that. And if you're kind of thinking, look, this is what I think is going to happen in the world. I think that governments are going to continue to debase, to debase their currencies. Saying, well, in, you know, I could put my money in Bitcoin and maybe I could see huge upside or I could put my money in gold and see some modest upside. I just think that, you know, I just think Bitcoin actually is going to end up eating a lot more of uh, gold's, gold's market share than we think. Um, yeah, I think scenario. in your interview with uh, DTAP, he, uh, Dan Tapiero, he basically said, if you look at like the M1 money supply and M2, it's, it's kind of a crazy move. Like that's parabolic, right? Yeah. And relatively, you know, you see, you see that, then the Bitcoin move does it <laughs> makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah, yeah, it does. And you know, we talked about this on uh, the Michael Saylor interview this week as well, re referencing a lot of uh, Blockworks interviews this week. But mm. uh, you know, when you look at something like um, the hockey stick that Bitcoin has been doing recently, it's very tempting to just look at that and say this is clearly a bubble. Um, but I, it kind of depends on your frame of reference. And I think you could look at that Bitcoin price and say, this is actually reflective of an adoption curve in Bitcoin. You could also say this is reflective of record debasement of, um, you know, the US dollar. And if you look at two, there are two pretty crazy charts out there. The one crazy chart is if you just look at the price of Bitcoin uh, denominated in US dollars, and it looks like it is, you know, shooting up, looks nuts. But look at the, the growth in the M1 money supply and, and M2. It's, an, it's nuts. It's yeah. insane. It looks like a fake chart. Uh, but it's coming out of, you know, the uh, Fred, you know, yeah. down in St. Louis. So we we are living in a post-truth world where like you just, the inputs, if you divide it by, you know, Raoul Powell says this is if you divide it by the Fed balance sheet or any other, you know, global central bank balance sheet, things look kind of like steady. It's like a normal line. But, um, and this, this actually gets into something I wanted to bring up, which is mm. all the monetary policy is basically pushed up financial assets. And, and I saw a tweet from Chamath Palihapitiya. I kind of want to read here real quick. He said, here's something I learned today. 1979 was peak inflation. It was also when the gap between the rich and the poor was the smallest. It was preceded by a big wealth inequality between rich and poor like today. Solutions started in 1960 with LBJ's war on poverty. By investing aggressively in infrastructure, social programs, and economic safety nets, he even the starting line, as poor started to earn more, they spent more, driving commodities and inflation. The rich did less well because the financial assets were worth less. The gap between rich and poor closed aggressively. The big realization for me is government spending leads the way, not private capital and markets. Which is like something that I've brought up uh, before, which is we're just in a giant rotation back to labor from capital. And I think everyone realizes monetary policy only really helps capital, which is people who understand debt and financial assets and all those things. And now we're seeing that that huge shift towards the fiscal, which... Okay, 
help, help me explain help explain something to me here though because there are two very competing viewpoints which is exactly what you just laid out what Chamath said which is inflation is kind of a reset and it acts as a de facto redistribution of wealth because financial assets which the wealthy tend to own go down and wage inflation you know wage kind of power goes up right mm -hmm. um so you kind of have people meet in the middle and people kind of throw this around and say hey, i will let inflation run hot and it'll kind of solve the inequality problem and then you've got other people that say well that is complete baloney because when there's inflation in an economy it means something is drastically broken it means cpi right so it's like core things that people need to live namely the price of food that's going way up that's less affordable uh, for people that have a lower income and that would be drastic that would be bad that would be really bad for the people on the lowest uh, rung of the income ladder so there are two very different uh, narratives that are kind of out there right now concerning inflation. Where do you fall um, on either one of those lines? I just think it's a giant cycle. And, you know, if, if here, here it's, it's very political. And I try to like keep in mind that I think we just went too far in the capital side where, yeah. you know, everyone got the benefit of, of disinflationary environment that's in the, the 1%. And to deny that is kind of crazy. Um, yeah. and you didn't really have the wage inflation. Like that's the funny part is, and I used, this is a generational thing, but I used to joke around is like, you know, I was working for a guy who barely could open a PDF, but got paid, you know, five times as much as me. And like the wage inflation isn't there. There's no meritocracy at giant mega corporations anymore because it's playing not to lose. And I think that's, that whole system is going to come back to help the millennial and Gen Z population um, in in the fiscal spending realm. So that that's sort of where I'm at. But like, you know, if inflation gets too crazy and like the handouts get insane where like economic growth starts getting awful, I'll lean back in the other direction. Like there's a nice balance in there somewhere of like yeah. helping have the government create infrastructure plans that help future growth. And then instead of just... You know, everything, here's the other thing that what, what tech did for the past like 10, 12 years is in a disinflationary environment, all they did was feed uh, social media and create like all these problems for the next generation where <laughs> instead of like, you didn't make, I can't get to London faster on an airplane. Like there's no like super technologies, maybe Elon Musk you know, what, what really changed besides like, oh, Amazon gets to my door within 24 hours. Like that's pretty cool, but it's just, a, it was all based off the consumer instead of like, you know, making other things better. Yeah, I agree. I, I think a lot of this comes down to business models, right? Like, um, if you look at the companies that really succeeded in gen one of the, it was, it was ad based business, the ad based business model won out in the mm. internet. And I think there were a lot of negative externalities that arose from that. And even if you just look at, you know, people getting whipped into a frenzy on Facebook and Twitter, the inflationary content is promoted on those algorithms. And I think it's just negative overall. Imagine being in middle school right now. I watched this movie the other day. It's called like eighth grade or something or being mm -hmm. a kid. And, you know, it follows this eighth grade girl, you know, and she's on Instagram all the time and looking at her friend. Middle school sucks, man. It's hard enough. I can't yeah. imagine what it would be like if there were kids, you know, posting these manicured photos of themselves 
Oh my god. Yeah. I'm not built for that. I, built I agree. That. I agree. Yeah, it's something, we've, we've moved so internal as the support for community has kind of rescinded. Like yeah. they, I remember used to go to like, I don't know, community events and like people don't do it anymore. They do it online. And I don't know. I think that's humans are by They have unfettered conversations on Clubhouse. Yeah, yeah. And like, what's funny is my network, my community is like podcasts now, right? And and that's what's turning into like, okay, I'm my ideologies are similar to these people that I listen to and follow, and that's my network that makes me feel good about humanity and, and alive. Whereas, like, if you use it in the poor way, which is just like social media superficiality like that's that's awful and i think that's the majority of the next generation yeah all right let's move on to this next yes. story here let's talk about let's talk about fidelity fidelity is filing for a bitcoin etf gonna give you a little bit of background here on this so fidelity it's the sixth recent filing for an etf so fidelity's in good company they're with wisdom tree investments vanek associates nidig asset management that company is going through a renaissance right now Valkyrie and First Advisors slash Skybridge. The fund would be called Wise Origin Bitcoin Index Fund One. It would make use of Fidelity's <laughs> in-house, uh, yeah, I know, great name, uh, in-house Bitcoin price index, and Fidelity Digital Assets would be the custodian. Um, so I think obviously it's big news. Fidelity's giant. Uh, it's it's great that they're filing for Bitcoin ETF, but. I think the real dynamic to understand this at play here is that this puts the SEC. The SEC is just in a weird position at this point with Bitcoin ETFs because usually when an ETF application is filed, there's no guarantee that that ETF is going to be successful, right? But now you've got GBTC, which if that it's got you know forty billion dollars um, in assets, right, in Bitcoin, that's is the de facto Bitcoin ETF that exists. You know that if a Bitcoin ETF popped up, it would be successful. So the SEC is in this weird position where, if they choose one, uh, you know, provider, then they would essentially kingmake, right? And the SEC doesn't want to do that. So they're in this weird position now. I think overall, uh, you know, our, our managing editor Liz, she talked to uh, Scaramucci, uh, the Mooch, uh, the other day, and he thinks that they're going to approve a, a batch all at once to kind of avoid some of the bad press. What, what do you think about everything that's going on here? I think you better have good branding because that's a very immediately became a super commoditized space. You know, <laughs> yeah. I think Bitwise is doing it pretty smart where they at least have a couple different products and, you know, Barry Silbert is branching out into, you know, a couple other ones. I think he's, you know, doing like the this decentralized trust and uh the basic attention token trust um in those ones. So if you're just doing basically Bitcoin, that just went from being like, you know, you had a moat around it to complete no pricing power. And you're competing against Fidelity, right? Like who is already offering free services to buy their funds. So I, I don't know what happens to the other ones. It's really hard. Yeah. It's a, t it's a tough game to be in. You don't really yeah. want to go up against Fidelity. I. You know what's funny? Eric Balkinus, that guy over at uh, Bloomberg, the, their ETFs guy, who's great, uh, was the first one that kind of called it to attention how important the ticker, the ticker is mm -hmm. on Zoom. Oh yeah. Um, so I guess it's going to be a race to see who gets. You know, is there a coin? I feel like there's a coin ticker or something already out there, but um, yeah. might be. You got to come up with something witty. Got to yeah. come up with something witty. Yeah. What do you yeah. think the best ones are? Bit. 
I guess, is that people are going to try to do that one. Probably already yeah. exists. I should look at this beforehand. <laughs> it's going to uh, be exciting for sure. But I mean, hey, for the consumer, this is where moon moon you got it you gotta love it it's cheesy know. but i feel like that would resonate actually moon would be a good one yeah. i interrupted you with my, no, 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 <laughs> my naming preferences you're, you're brilliant dude just let it <laughs> let it go no one's <laughs> called me to ask me my uh my input on something like this um that's shocking that, give, yeah. give me a call you know my number's <laughs> in my email signature so um you, you know but you know what this it's it's ridiculous that it hasn't been a Bitcoin ETF has not been approved. And we're going to get into this because we're going to talk about um, GBTC and some of the problems that are going on there. But it is kind of ridiculous that it hasn't been approved. And I feel like when people think about ETFs, they think about, well, you know, these very popular ones that everyone kind of knows, the ones that track the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ and, and ETFs like that. But that's not true. There are very obscure ETFs that track weird assets. I actually looked one up so I could give a good example here. There is... There is actually an obesity ETF. Like we talked about, ticker is slim. It's a great ticker, good branding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was approved in 2016. It's got 12 million in AUM. Here, here's what it does. It invests in companies that are positioned to profit from servicing the obese. So I'm not picking on this. I'm not picking on this ETF. All I'm saying is that if we have an obesity ETF, we should have a Bitcoin ETF. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's it's just, very fair. That just is, seems fair, and it makes yeah. sense. Um, I mean, some of the products that are coming out are just insane. Have you seen the SPAC chart of like the amount of SPACs out there looking for acquisitions? No, it's crazy. Know. So that, likewise, I think it, if you're going to go buy like a f somewhat, you know, private company at a ridiculous valuation, whereas like Bitcoin, it's been around ten years, the best performing asset since its inception. I, I just think it's crazy that there's not one relative to what's going on in like other parts of the market. You have Chinese companies that after 10 years, they're finally like, you know, they're just Chinese frauds literally trading on our U.S. markets and we don't have a Bitcoin yeah. ETF. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, the, so what it seems like the concern is around is um, there are basically two kind of requirements that need to be met. Um, which is that one, it, uh, Bitcoin, it, there needs to be proof that it's inherently resistant to fraud and manipulation. And second, that for any exchange listing, the ETF enters into a surveillance agreement with a regulated market cap of significant size. The, the surveillance agreement seems to be okay. It seems like what, um, the SEC is getting hung up on is, somehow proving that Bitcoin is inherently resistant to fraud and manipulation. I don't even know how you do that. I'm, I'm not sure if, if anyone out there is an expert on this and understands the technicalities of what the SEC is looking at, you know, give, give me or Tyler a shout, uh, because it would be great to understand what the, the rationale is being given, um, for why this hasn't been approved yet. Um, yeah. And it's important. Know. It's important. It's because, you know, our, our friend Jeff Dorman at ARCA wrote this great, article on this and maybe we can this will transition us to our next topic here but the danger on uh products like gbtc which i'm not taking digs at grayscale or, or dcg big fans of those guys but if there's a premium you know that is somewhere between 15 and 40 or 85 percent it you know you could have bought gbtc um you know at the beginning of this this bitcoin bull run and barely made any money 
or you would have, you know, you would have underperformed the underlying asset of Bitcoin by a couple hundred percent. I mean, that is, that is significant, I think, to point out. Um, yeah. So. And now, you know, when they do open up a Bitcoin ETF, which I, I think is inevitable. Um, Me too. As liquidity is now there, it's a trillion dollar asset class. Yeah. But. You know, there is still an ARB opportunity around that GBTC product as well. You know, I think if it's trading at a 14% discount and it's 10, 10 today, you can buy GBTC and then short the spot Bitcoin and make a riskless profit. So it might turn into just, you know, taking the fees into into the, the product. You can There's still an ARB opportunity there and it just creates a better ecosystem having more products that's just what scale does right right great transition into our second kind of story and what we're looking at here so let's talk about gbtc so gbtc is now trading a 14 percent discount to nav and a potentially related story is that blockfi has decided to lower its interest rates um on bitcoin so the context that we were just talking about right is gbtc it's a trust structure it's been acting as an essential um, Bitcoin ETF for a long period of time. There's been a, a very well understood arbitrage that accredited investors and a lot of hedge funds have taken advantage of this get to run, which is they're able to buy um, at at NAV, right? Buy at the net asset value of the shares and the trust, and then they can sell it after a six month lo uh, lockup at the market rate, right? So they can essentially capture that premium. That now, there's no premium anymore, and it's actually a discount of 14%. So, you know, that throws a wrench if you are depending on that. If you are depending on that arbitrage, and uh, it looks like there were billions of dollars in uh, of capital that that was depending on that arbitrage. So, um, yeah, it's I think a lot of you know. For a loop. The question is, when did they buy it? If they bought it six months ago, they're still kind of. Even though they're selling, they're still making a profit because you know Bitcoin's gone up a ton. Yeah. Uh, so that that's but but the lending rate thing is is super interesting, and yeah. I guess watching you know what's happening with the futures curve and and kind of that basis trade where the the profitability kind of shrinks as the futures curve gets less steep um, makes lending rates I guess shrink a little bit. So to get so to give everyone context for this, so BlockFi, one of the largest crypto lenders um, by size, uh, by by all accounts, they're a great organization. They announced they got some attention this week because they cut their rates on on Bitcoin. To be upfront, it's it's a relatively minor cut, right? This was a, it was a cut of about one percent that they were paying back on Bitcoin only for a certain class. They've got different tiers of of uh, of user basically based on how much Bitcoin or ETH or whatever you're depositing. Also, some context to understand here, this is not the first time that BlockFi has adjusted their rates. The last time they adjusted it was back in April of 2020, and they actually raised rates at that point from 4.9% to 6%. But I think what's interesting to note here, the reason why we're talking about GBTC trading at a discount uh, to NAV at the same time that we're bringing up BlockFi lowering interest rates, um, is I think we're just starting to understand how structurally important GBTC was to lending markets. Right. Yep. And we've talked a bunch in the past about how can these uh, lenders, you know, be how can these 8% interest rates that you're seeing in crypto be be possible? Right. Um, and it looks like one huge area or 
source of demand for, for borrow, at least on Bitcoin as an asset, right, was into this uh, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And now that that has, um, you know, at least changed structurally, it seems like that's impacting the lending market. And you're starting to hear whispers um, about there being just less overall demand, borrow demand for BTC as an asset, um, which I think is is worth pointing out. Um, yeah. It you did mean that's a huge influx of institution in GPTC in the underlying, like there was, you know, a good, that first three months of 2021 saw everyone rushing in. I think, I feel like they queued up all their compliance for Jan one and you had that steep curve as the demand came in and, you know, things consolidate after a while. So this makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, And now you're hitting that commoditization piece of the puzzle where, you know, the, the the capital has gone in. Now things are getting cheaper for everybody else. And mm-hmm. I think that's going to cause that next wave of, of demand for institutional. Yeah. I don't think it's a, I don't think this is necessarily the beginning of a, a trend, right? It's just, it's just worth pointing out, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and Matt, um, ball and swag. I hope I'm pronouncing that name right. Yeah. Uh, but, um, he, he's over at Genesis. He had a great, he had a great tweet. Someone this. give that guy a raise. Someone should give that guy a raise. That was, yeah. it was really solid. It was really solid. You hear that, Michael Morrow? Got to, got to give our boy Matty a <laughs> Matty, Matty raise. He needs um, to get more active on social media too. I thought that was really. He does. Uh, he does. That thread. That thread took off. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was really quite good. But it was a great. It was a great uh, just explanation of what's going on overall. And um, you know, you kind of have started to see some people calling for you know saying that. Companies like BlockFi are, are in trouble. It was actually a really negative campaign that was launched by a competitor. I'm not even going to name who the competitor was, but it was a pretty underhanded thing to, to do to BlockFi, which, again, mm-hmm. I'll say the great company. And, um, yeah, I, I think a lot of that those concerns are overblown in general. And I, I yeah. just think this is interesting to talk about just because it's, it's interesting to watch, you know, the institutional lending market in this space. Um, yeah, it's super healthy that, you know, Lending rates are changing, and they're not just trying to you know suck in as much capital as possible. It's 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 kind of like a free market now, like where things are you know, adjusting. I know. I mean, it's really. I, I think that's the most fascinating thing. Like w- when I look at it from a big picture perspective, the reason why institutions are getting into Bitcoin now is because there's zero yield in in the market, right? In the public markets, and I think the more that that capital kind of flows out from this system that's basically trapped you in no yield. Like they're, they're, that's, that's what financial repression essentially does. And you're seeing it slowly seep out. We saw the first bastion to, to kind of do it in the first quarter. And now we're, you know, it's good that BlockFi exists and they can lower rates, you know, based on supply and demand. And then once it picks up, maybe interest rates pick up as inflation picks up. Um, and that's, that's just like, it's a fascinating cycle to watch because I'm sure this happened in the, the fiat system years ago. Um, and, and it's happening before our eyes right now. I, I completely agree. I think the yield, the yield thing is, uh, people are starting to cotton on to this narrative, but that's a huge, um, driver of people into digital assets in general. Mm-hmm. If you look at really, you know, mega trends, 
right? I actually was a consultant, so I'm scarred by that, that phrase, megatrends, but big <laughs> trends over a long period of time. Um, you know, what you're seeing is interest rates are on a steady march down. And I mean, it's kind of nonlinear, but for like thousands of years, actually, there's great charts on Twitter, you can see interest rates are going down. And, mm-hmm. you know, commensurate to that, you see financial assets, you know, primarily the stock market going up, right? But at some point, I guess there is some logical limit to how far those interest rates can really fall. And I think we're at this this juncture where we're, we're playing with the zero bound, uh, at least on kind of U.S. Uh, denominated interest rates. And you, you probably can cross that and maybe CBDCs end up being the avenue or the tool that governments use to kind of take that final leap. But I think wonky, wonky things start to happen and people are going to move further and further out on the risk spectrum. And I do not think that we're at the end of this cycle or that seeing that trend play out. It feels yeah. like there's more room to go for sure. Um, yeah, I, th- I think, you know, the, the mass mutual thing is so underrated like that. Them getting into digital assets is just unbelievable, especially, could you know, and they're they're probably one of 100 life insurance companies that need to, you know, satisfy that liability side of their business with yield. And they can't get it like investing in a high yield company that's going to get annihilated from like old school 1970s inflation is, is you're, you're just going to see a massive influx into digital assets is my call. But we'll see. The, the dollar thing could screw it up in the interim if you get like, yeah. you know, credit default cycle going on in emerging markets. It would be great to talk to someone uh, on the investment side of an insurance company they're so buttoned up with compliance, I think it would be really difficult to actually do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the problem with insurance com- insurance companies have liabilities that extend far out into the future, right? They understand the annuities that they need to pay out uh, to their mm-hmm. constituents, or their, their premiums, or the annuities that they need to pay out, they collect premiums. So basically what they're trying to do is match, match up assets with those liabilities that they have extending into the future. Bonds are a favored tool of insurance companies because they know exactly when they're going to receive payments extending mm. out 10 or 30 years. But now when yields on those bonds dip to a certain level, they stop becoming a useful tool for insurance companies. So I actually have no idea how insurance companies are going about solving this problem. It looks like they're looking at Bitcoin. Um, mm. I doubt that's the only piece of the puzzle. They probably have some weird, you know, esoteric kind of insurance products that, you know, Goldman is whipping up. We've got a team of unhappy analysts, you know, whip up these insurance projects, these uh, yeah. insurance products. I don't know how they're solving that problem, but neither um, do I. I think that's why they're they're kind of scared. I, I'd be scared um, if you were own, if you owned, you know, Jeff Sherman of Double Line just was like, you know, interest rate risk is an absolutely enormous here, and if you have a book, you know, that's priced to perfection, you're probably like, what the hell happens from here? So I agree with you. It's going to be, it's going to be crazy. Those guys, we've got Bill Campbell at Double Line coming on a webinar in the next couple of weeks. Oh, nice. So maybe we should ask him about this. He's going to be talking about CBDCs too. So I'm curious to get his take. Yeah. Um, so insur- insurance companies definitely an area to watch. The last kind of final boss, right, of uh, of real large pools of capital, sovereign wealth funds, and it looks like there actually might be some movement on that front. So um, during the Real Vision uh, crypto gathering conference, which I heard was great. Um, the founder, Raul Paul, sat down with the NYDIG CEO, Robbie Gutman. Robbie mentioned that uh, some unnamed sovereign wealth funds 
have been approaching them about buying Bitcoin. Raul, even more interestingly, responded that uh, Singapore, one of the sovereign wealth funds in Singapore, which is Temasek, uh, has been buying Bitcoin apparently from miners um, since 2018, which would be, I haven't seen that confirmed anywhere, so I'm not sure if that's actually, doesn't seem like that's confirmed true yet, but mm -hmm. that would be big news. Um, and there's some kind of evidence to back that up because GIC, which is their other sovereign wealth fund, they led a, an $80 million Series C uh, investment into Anchorage, which of course, a uh, digital assets, financial services uh, company. Um, so that would be big news if- Oh my God, uh, yeah. enormous news. Enormous. That's the biggest news. The biggest news, yeah. And, yeah. and how, how do governments regulate it at that point? Or not regulate it, but like outlaw it. If, if your own sovereign wealth funds or other sovereign wealth funds, as soon as you get that first mover, it's going to create like this, you know, keeping up with the Joneses effect, I got to imagine. I would have to imagine too. And one of the, because this is something else we talked about with Grant Williams on this, this upcoming podcast, but just the fear of governments banning Bitcoin, which I still think that is the greatest underappreciated unpriced risk in this market. You know, we talked about back in, in the 30s, uh, Executive Order 6102, the government, the U.S. government banned gold mm -hmm. for 40 years, <laughs> for 40 I know, years. I know you love that. But here, I know. here's the difference. I, my eyes get what every time. That's insane. That's and I've been thinking about that, too. But what I look at is like all these relative things, which is the innovation and job creation coming from digital assets is huge. And if you outlaw Bitcoin or, or whatever, any digital asset, I think that causes like massive ramifications. You have Mark Benioff investing in this stuff. Now you have, you know, Andreessen Horowitz, the people who created the internet in so many jobs. You think behind closed doors, they're going to be like, oh, hey, Elon, you own Bitcoin. Uh, by the way, it's outlawed. They need pensions to be funded. And that's the biggest thing behind the, all these doors is like, you know, until pensions are 100% funded, I think they are going to push crazy asset price inflation. But I, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I, I think watching the credit markets, you know, we just had the, the biggest high yield debt issuance for the first quarter um, ever, I think. So they're pushing this thing as much as they possibly can until inflation really hits. So um, aren't you assuming though, isn't implicit in that assumption that governments are actually going to do something that makes sense, which I feel like they have proven themselves not to do uh, at, at key junctures like this. Um, that's a fair point. I, yeah, I guess it depends on how cynical you are about all this, but yeah. I, you know, you look at, they haven't gotten it right so far. <laughs> Let's put it like mm -hmm. that. And it's been, I get it. It's the first 10 years of this asset class. It takes time. It's weird stuff. Bitcoin is a weird esoteric, you know, kind of miracle thing that's happened. Um, mm -hmm. And it takes a long time for any one person to wrap their mind around it. It takes much longer for government agencies to wrap their minds around it. So I get very it. True. It takes it takes a very long period of time, and I think people are still working through this right now. But at the same time, I'm still worried about it. I'm still worried about it. So yeah, you, you made you me feel a little bit better. That Binance hired, I think it was one of the guys at the Financial Actions Task Force. Yeah, it was recently. Retired. Yeah, 
they're all trying to like you know get their inside men uh and women to to be at these digital asset firms because they know it's it's an innovation you know growth for the economy and if they get stifled you know what happens then you just you end up with like these mega corporations everywhere in the US that treat every person and all the labor just gets commoditized well so they but they hired people I'm pretty sure they were ex FATF and okay. Yeah. Kind of like, you guys can do a little better than that. Okay, you have billions of dollars. I don't know. I I want to see more star power coming out of you, Binance. Which is, yeah. that's, that's what I'm. You know, I fair. I, yeah. yeah, give me like a current congressman or woman, or you know, senator or you know, governor or something. That's what I. That's that would that would be yeah. a that'd be a big. big Getting swing, back to but. the the sovereign wealth thing though, though is so if if they are asking about it that. Sete from uh, Norway, that that fund, yeah. I think that's one step removed from from the Norges Bank buying it, you know. And I, mm -hmm. I, they got to be at least talking, which is like one point four trillion, the big oil fund in Norway. Yeah. They got to be close to to buying some, I'd imagine, with with everything that's going on in the world and you know globalization kind of slowly taking receding. I'd say. I'd imagine they, they got to be thinking about that. I think so too, because the one, the one, uh, I guess there is kind of a game theory element to all of this, which is that if you ban it, if you ban crypto or make it, you know, very arduous from an innovation perspective, then you risk losing your seat at the table. So I guess at the end of the day, it really boils down to whether or not the people that are in decision-making positions view this as being what the future sort of looks like or if they think it's a, a fad. And I think the danger is that if, if you think it's a fad, then you're much more likely to ban it and say, I don't care about my seat at this table, right? This doesn't mm -hmm. appear to be a table where I even want a seat. Uh, and I think maybe that's probably the biggest risk, but you know, I guess that all comes down to just education and understanding. So, um, yeah, if, if that happens though, we're, we're going to end up like the Ray Dalio getting banned. We're just going to all end up in centrally planned economies and you know, I don't know. I don't think that's a good thing. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm not advocating for that. Not one bit. Yeah. Um, that's also kind of the MMT thing as well, which um, you know that that's the MMT argument, right? Which is that we can print as much money as we want. Uh, why should we? You know, don't worry about taxes. The only guardrail should be when inflation pops up. The problem with that is when you then think about the mechanism of how capital gets allocated. It all comes from the government which mm -hmm. is not, I don't think, the allocation mechanism that you want. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. That's yeah, the free the, market. The problem perfect, is but... the, the private sector was so efficient that all it did was like go to the highest returning, best ROI software companies. And then, you you know, you never renovate the, the New York City public transit system. You know, That's you need point. some sort of uh, fiscal type thing to to enhance that innovation and, and create um i guess more efficient economies down the line but there's a good balance in there somewhere you know yeah i think you just need a balance for this um yeah you know when you see biden you know pushing through these big stimulus plans a lot of fiscal spending i guess my reaction is kind of seems long overdue and one one 
idea that's been getting bandied around or tossed around for a long time is an infrastructure bill. I, that to me just seems like the biggest win-win of all time. And I'm kind of curious as to why that hasn't happened. It looked like it actually might get passed under Trump, but even before his administration, people have been talking about an infrastructure bill for a long period of time. It'd be good for jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we frankly need it. Uh, you know, John Oliver, like, a couple of years ago, did some piece on how our highways are falling apart. And yeah, I mean, I agree with that, all that stuff. I'm just afraid, you know, knowing the government, it transforms into like some snowball effect of just, you know, constant, you know, checks for for doing absolutely nothing. And yeah. but if you can do it in the right way, hey, you know, more power to our generation. I agree. And yeah. and if the dollar doesn't completely implode, I guess that's a good thing too. We don't want, yeah, we do not want that. All right, man. That yeah. was, this was good. What are, what are you doing this weekend? You got any big plans? Um, honestly, no. It's mm. uh, springtime here. We uh, we created a little planter out back with some tomatoes and squash. So we'll see if those grow. Never done this that before. Lovely, I'm lovely. The least handy gardener person on the planet. How, how about you? What are you doing? Me too. Uh, well. In that same vein, it's fun. So I moved into a new apartment, got some outdoor space, rare for New York. So been thinking about how to how to take advantage of that. We actually almost got uh, like a little home garden. That's just too ambitious for me. I'm uh, I gotta be honest with myself. At yeah, this you're point still in New York, dude. I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready for that. Yeah, I'm not ready. For that. I'm not sure I can keep those things alive. Um, but hey, how did power washing go? The power washing went great. The power washing went great. <laughs> For those of you who have not seen this, I've been I've been proudly posting on our, our group Slack that, uh, yeah, I moved into this apartment, inherited a pretty grimy porch. So we went out, got a power washer, you know, day one, <laughs> scrubbed that whole bad boy, uh, and it's looking very good. The neighbors, here's here's the problem, though. The neighbors, you know, we blew some of the, the grime into their patch. You know, Uh-oh. they immediately kind of come came over and said, hey, can we borrow the power washer? You know, probably blew it right back. You know, so now we're in a bit of a war where the muck is just going from <laughs> one person's porch to the other. Um, and I, you know, I think this is a battle of determination and I feel pretty good about it. I feel like, feel like we're going to, we're going to come out on top, but I, I did, uh, <laughs> I, I did, I did, I did, I ordered a, see this is how I know I'm getting older. I, you know, I used to be excited. One of my plans for the weekend, I'm going to go out and do this thing. I'm excited about the furniture that I ordered and I ordered oh, this yeah. big table so I could host <laughs> dinner parties and it came today, it came a couple weeks early even. So I'm just like, <laughs> you know, I'm coming out of my shoes. I'm so excited over here and I'm, I'm looking for it. I got, you know, meetings until 5.30 today and then I'm going to set this table up and that's all I want to do with my, my Friday, big Friday night. <laughs> so exciting. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. yeah you're, you're officially old. That and your cargo shorts. I, yeah. I don't. I'm gonna stand up in my next uh, recording here, so everyone can see my. And I'm wearing Lululemons, actually, very trendy, uh, very Williamsburg of me. Yeah, so, yeah, um, I just don't want anyone out there thinking I'm wearing that. I used to wear cargo shorts. And I got a lot of, a lot of flack for that. You know, so you learn quickly. Uh, no cargo shorts for for this guy. But oh yeah, me too. Um, my, my wife works at Chubby's. Mm. Plug for Chubby's. Um, and she's like, if you ever wear cargo shorts ever again, I'll burn them and I'll burn you <laughs> <laughs> and I'll leave you. It's a dire threat. I, yeah. props to her, I, you know, I got some chubbies um, a couple years ago, I, like the red, white, and blue ones. I thought, you know, sometimes when you pick out clothes, you picture yourself 
I, you know, I don't know what I was thinking. I was like, you know, in a Fourth of July kind of scenario, I'm gonna I'm gonna wear these things. Never mm. worn them. They're still sitting in my drawer. Can't can't yeah. get rid of them because I keep <laughs> thinking when I'm gonna throw it out. I picture myself at you know some kind of Fourth yeah. of July barbecue or something like a lake. Yeah, you jumping know. off a lake. Like, what am I picturing in my head? These are yeah. very, you know, rare scenarios. Why, like, why I'm, why I see this, this pair of, you know, red, white, and blue the, chubbies. Their marketing and, is just that good. Yeah, I guess it is. I guess it is. Yeah. It's crazy. And I, you know, I end up getting clothes like that, and I underspend on just, you know, regular shirts and shorts because I'm like, I don't, I don't need any of those, but. You know, you know, I might what, be at a Fourth of July barbecue, and then I would be sadly out of luck if I don't get this thing. Yeah. So, <laughs> last thing I'll bring up before we end this thing is, when's the next time you'll actually buy a suit? That's a great. That's a great question. I haven't bought a suit in years. Yeah, in years. Yeah, like because what do you when I need, need one for? When I need that? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I it's feel much like better what do people wear at Blockworks events. Is it like? You know, that's a good question. People, it, it varies actually. People, some, you know, the formal people, they'll put on, they'll have like a, a jacket and, and no tie kind of deal, mm -hmm. you know, like some nice slacks, so like okay. business yeah, slacks yeah. and, uh, you know, like a jacket and, um, it depends, you know, if it's a family office, they're, they're in like a t-shirt and shorts and flip-flops, you know, yeah. <laughs> because Gotta love it. that's how you can spot the family office in the, if there's like a nice event and everyone's dressed up and looking sharp and mm -hmm. there's one guy in like, you know, flip-flops or loafers and, you know, like a, this ancient, uh, you know, polo or something, you're like, that's yeah. the family office. Yeah, yeah. They do I not give that. two shits about, yeah. about the dress code here. Yeah. yeah. So that's a good, that's a good tip for spotting them in a crowded room. Um, all right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of On The Margin. If you are listening to us on Apple, uh, please make sure to give us a rating or review. Uh, tell us what you'd like to see covered next week. Tyler and I are always looking for suggestions of interesting stuff to talk about. If you're listening to us on YouTube or Spotify, uh, just hit that subscribe button and we'll see you, both, uh, see you all next week. 